following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The, the topic, the theme that John's talking about here is love. What really is love? In the world we live in today, it's a rather confusing concept because we use the word love to mean lots of different things. And as you probably know, in Greek, there are several words for love. Does anybody know how many words? Most people will say three. Technically, there's four. Um, if you're only right, the right answer on the quiz, right? four words for love. So the Greek language can distinguish love much more clearly. Uh, in, in English, it can mean everything from lust to lying down one's life for his friend, right? Pretty broad topic to call it love, right? To put those things all in the same category. Um, and I think if we were to survey, you know, the Internet and kind of come up with a definition for what love is uh, in, in modern thinking, it, it would probably be something like this. Love is, love means that I'm attracted to someone and I want them to like me. And so I, I make some kind of advance towards them, and they respond in a way that indicates that they do like me. And I get this great emotional buzz because all of a sudden my life has meaning and worth, and I'm somebody to somebody, right? And, uh, and, and it feels good. It feels good to be liked by the person you want to like you. Uh, of course, you know, getting liked by the person you don't want to like you is not quite, as, not quite the same buzz, right? So it's really important how this all works out. And because uh, we know that's not what love is. Uh, but f- to a large extent, that's what the word love means in our culture and society. It means I feel good because somebody likes me. But at the very core of that, it's very selfish, right? Um, it's, it's me getting this emotional buzz, getting value and worth because I am, I am valued by somebody I want to like me. But of course, John's definition of what John pictures, what he talks about here is love is something much different. And he says, uh, he says here that, um, you know, if we, uh, if we are born of God, we will love as God loves. And this is how we can know we're Christians. So if, uh, if we use the world's definition for love, um, it would mean everybody's a believer, right? Everybody knows God. But clearly, John's talking about something much different here. He's talking about a love that is God's love. And that when we love like that, it's a mark. It's an identifying sign that we are his children uh, and that we are saved and born again. Um, So we want to look a a little bit about what this love looks like. And our message will break down into two parts. First, we're going to look at God's love uh, as it's described here. Not a complete picture of everything we could say about God's love, but, uh, but, but John zeroes in on it. We're going to look at that briefly. And then we will talk about uh, if we're supposed to do this, how, how do we do this? How do we love like God does? Uh, so let's jump in. Um, what is love? What is love? Um, well, he says very directly and pointedly, he says God is love. Verse 8, anyone who does not know, love does not know God because God is love. Uh, he is the very definition of what love is. Uh, love is what God is. And it's, it's the very essence of his nature and being. Uh, now, this does not mean 
even though it's Christmas time, this does not mean God is Santa Claus, right? So we get this idea that if God is love, it means that he's like this jolly Santa Claus guy who dispenses good gifts and really doesn't expect much and never gets angry. Like the worst that could happen to you is you get coal instead of candy, you know. But, but uh, and, and this kind of idea that God can't be angry because anger is not love. But that's really not what it means. Uh, uh, God is uh, God is loving in all that He does. His love permeates every one of His attributes and characteristics. Uh, we talk about God being single. And by that, what we mean is he's, he's not like us. He doesn't sway from one thing to another. So it means that all of his attributes, holiness, wrath, judgment, compassion, vengeance, mercy, flow from the perfection of his love. Right? So when God is angry, angry and wrathful, it is one expression of his love. Uh, we don't have time to explain that, but that's, that's, that's who God is. Another truth about God is love. It means that God must be triune. He must be a trinity. Uh, he must be one God in three persons. Uh, a solitary God who is solitary in person cannot be loving. Okay, God is solitary in his being. He's one in being. But he, scripture teaches us that he's three persons. I'm not going to explain this one either because it's too complicated. We don't have time. But let me just say this. It's essential that God be three persons. Otherwise, he can't be loving. Because love is primarily how you relate to others. Uh, if before God created creation, he was alone, he could not be loving. So uh, at the core of it is this trinitary relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For eternity past, before he created anything, God was in this love relationship within uh, Father, Son, Son, Spirit, Spirit, Father. Um, but uh, what John's talking about here is not really that so much as he's talking about how God displayed or manifest that love to us. How do we know that God is loving? Uh, and if we could uh, peel back heaven and, and peer into heaven and see the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, and we could comprehend it, we would be blown away by what God, God's love is toward himself and in himself. But we can't see that, and if, if we looked at it, I think it would be a language so far beyond us, uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't understand it. So God uh, wanted to show us his love, and so he did it in a different way. And John explains what God's love looks like in, in verses 9 and 10. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed. It was as you'll see, it means to, to, re, to be realized, to made visible and real to us. And this was the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, <clears throat> God has revealed his love to us. He's given us a picture, an image of his love realized in the world, and that is in, in Christ, in the incarnation, the sending of his son. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's how God demonstrated what love is to us. Now, again, that's, this is not the full definition of God's love, 
But it's the most clear picture for us to grasp and understand the heart of God's love. And at Christmas, it is appropriate that we think about God's love as we remember his gift, or the Father's gift, sending his Son to us. And I want to look at what this means um, as, as God's love is, is realized in the gospel. What, what does this mean? Let me unpack a couple implications or a couple of ways that this is evident. First of all, God's love, it means that God's love is incarnational. Big, long word. And it's really too bad that there's really not a better English word for it. I know you, you don't go around saying, like, well, that was, like, really incarnational, dude. You know, it's not like in our daily vocabulary. Um, it took the early church 400 years to actually define this word and understand what it meant uh, fully. And I think we still don't grasp what it means to be incarnational. But uh, the simple, quick theological definition is that it is all of God uh, taking on all of human flesh. So when Jesus became man, uh, he retained all that it meant for him to be God, even though he emptied, he set aside some of its use, but he didn't give it up. And he took on human likeness, human form. He took on a body, a life of flesh. Um, for our purposes today, what it really means is that God came to us. Right? He entered our world. He meets us where we live. God doesn't just send emails from space. Right? He showed up with us. And Jesus was born in, in a stable, in a manger, in real straw and real cow stuff. Right? And, and re- he, he ate real food and he grew up like a real person. He entered our world and he uh, came to our experience, our pain and our weakness and our struggles to join in them. Uh, Yesterday was uh, King's birthday, Father's Day here in Thailand. Uh, In many ways, the King of Thailand is a good example of an incarnational ruler, right? And if you've seen, you know, the videos and the movies, you see pictures of the king in very common, everyday, ordinary clothes, Driving One of my favorite ones, he's driving this old Jeep Wagoneer, which I'm sure was new at the time. It was a very old video. Driving this Jeep Wagoneer through, through a river. You know, it's like, this is my kind of guy. He likes four-wheeling it up, you know. And uh, he, he's going to remote villages to meet with the lowliest of his people, to go out there and be with them, right, and to offer help and aid and teach them how to, you know, raise sustainable crops. And you see pictures of him pouring over maps and taking pictures said everywhere he went in an airplane, he would always photograph from the sky everything he saw. And he would compare it with maps because he wanted to solve the flooding problems in central Thailand. He cared about their problems and he was out there living with the people in in, in a sense and meeting them concerned about their needs. And it's a good picture of of, um, some of what incarnation is. But, But what Jesus did was even more than that, right? Because the king did still live in the palace, right? He didn't move to the village and live there permanently. Uh, but that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't just take forays out of the palace to earth. He permanently moved out of the palace and lived his full life from birth to death with us. And not as a king, not as wealthy person, but as a poor common carpenter, right? That's incarnation. Um, second part of his love, uh, his love is generous 
sacrificial and unselfish. And it's kind of three words I want to use to describe really one thing. John says this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is unselfish. Uh, it It says not that we have loved God. If God was hoping that by this, you know, that, that we would like him, uh, of course we, we do, and the, the work of the gospel does change us, but we did not like God when he did this. Scripture says we were his enemies, we hated him, we were against him. We had rebelled and rejected him. Right? We did not love God before, and, and yet he loved us when we were not loving him. Um, He's unselfish in his love. Uh, He does not love because he needs us to like him or because he wants us to like him. He he wants us to know him and be in relationship with him. But he loved us regardless. And his love is universal. He loved the whole world, even though a large chunk of the world is unfazed by his love. So he's unselfish. He's generous. He sent his son. Um, Again, going back to this idea of the Trinity, um, God lived as a father to Jesus long before he came to earth. And, and imagine this. If you are a parent, imagine this, that, um, you know, that you would give up your son or your daughter to be somebody else's child. Right? Now, I know there's days when that sounds really good, right? It's like, can I pick the days? Today would be one of those days. I'll give my child to anybody, right? But uh, a true parent's love, we wouldn't really do that permanently, right? Because we love our children. Um, God was generous in giving his, his son, his dearly loved son. It was the most precious and costly thing that, Jesus, that God had in heaven, right? Right? Uh, God can make, with the, 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 the spoken, with one spoken word, he could make a universe of pure gold. Right? When it comes to wealth and material things, those are easy for him. It costs him nothing. It's just a word. Right? And I'd be okay if he kind of gave that word to me. You know, you could, God, give Tim like a million dollars because he'll use it for your glory. Right? God could just do that. Poof, it's there. Right? But, but God gave his son. Right? It, it was costly to him. The most precious and costly thing he could give, and he gave it generously. He held nothing back. He gave his son fully and completely to us. Um, and thirdly, he didn't just give his son to, to come and hang out, be an example, to do some teaching, you know, put on a seminar, have some PowerPoints. Uh, that would have been cool, and, and, and Jesus had a lot to teach. But, but he gave him ultimately to be pro, a propitiation. Big, huge word we never use, and nobody knows what it means. I'll explain it in a minute. But uh, it, it, what it means is that he gave him as a sacrifice, as we celebrated in the, in the Lord's Supper. He gave him with the single purpose, the ultimate purpose and goal, that he would die for us. Right? So he didn't just give him as a, an ambassador. He gave him as a sacrifice. We see it pictured in Abraham offering up Isaac. And, and we feel the agony of, of a father who would, would sacrifice his son. Huge sacrifice, right? And, and these are all pictures of what God's love is for us, right? 
And in Christ we see it. And not just in Christ, but it's his heart towards us and it always. He is always generous towards us. He is always unselfish towards us. And he is always giving a love that is sacrificial towards us. Right? Uh, but is seen supremely in Jesus. Um, beyond that, his love is redeeming. Um, and, and sadly, uh, there's, there's a talk today about Jesus' death being basically pointless, other than that it just was a demonstration of God's love. So it's kind of like, you know, a guy gets in trouble with his wife and he needs to make it up to her, so he, you know, he... Uh, he does something really extreme and radical to, to show his love. So he buys flowers, which to the guy really is pointless and meaningless because it doesn't do anything. But it's, it shows something that he loves his wife, right? He spent money on it. In Thailand, it's even more pointless because flowers are cheap. But in places like, like America, where it can cost you a couple hundred dollars, you know, uh, it's just saying, yeah, see, I, I do love you. Look at what I spent, you know, to uh, show my love. But God's love for us in Christ was more than just that, way more than that. It was what was required and necessary to fix our alienation from him. It was a propitiation. He says that it is how we live through him. Right? His death was not empty or meaningless. It was what was required. And the word propitiation, the Greek word that, uh, that comes from, has two possible meanings. Uh, and there's a lot of debate, and I won't get into the whole debate, because I think they're both true. I don't think it's an either or. I think both words explain what Jesus' death was about. And the two, two ideas are propitiation and expiation. Uh, expiation means to remove sin from something. Uh, it's, it's a legal word, and if you want to talk legal talk, it means to expunge something from your record. It means you're charged with a crime, and you come before a judge, and the judge says, I'm going to expunge that from his record. I'm going to so take it off, guilty or not, I'm going to take it off of his record so it's not charged against him. With Jesus suffering, his death, his blood, it says cleanses us of sin. It washes us. It removes sin and all its effects from our life. So that when we stand before God, the sin is removed as far as the east from the, from the west. Right? He does not see it. It is not on our record anymore. It is not in our life. We are clean. We are holy. We are washed and made righteous. Right? That's expiation. Uh, but Jesus' death is also a propitiation. And that side of it has more to do with God. And it has to do with this, this loving God who loves what he's created so much. He loves us so much that when it's damaged or broken, his, his response to that because of love is wrath and anger. It makes him angry when sin ruins and destroys what he created. When it, when it turns the goodness of his creative purpose into what is evil and twisted and broken. And so there, in God's anger and wrath, there, there must be justice. Uh, there must be a penalty. Sins and crimes must be paid for. Well, Jesus' death is a propitiation. It satisfies God's wrath by meeting uh, and paying the penalty for sin's consequences. Right? So on both sides, Jesus' death does those things. It takes sin away from us. It removes God's wrath 
the, the, the punishment that we deserve because of sin. And it sets us free. So what's the point of all that? Well, it's redeeming. God knew what we needed. He knew the only thing that would help us. And he loved us so much, he did that thing that was truly effective to help us, to redeem us, to save us. Lastly, uh, and again, this is not the whole list of what God's love is, but it's what we can see most vividly portrayed in the gospel. Uh, God's love is unconditional and all-forgiving. Right? Uh, we do not deserve or merit his love. Right? And, and the, whole, the whole misunderstood concept of election uh, is that God chose us apart from anything that we did to deserve that choice. He called us first. Right? We didn't seek God. We did not love God. We didn't go on some journey to find God. God reached down to us. He came to us. He chose us. He sent his salvation for us. And we don't deserve it. We're not smart enough to figure it out for ourselves. We're not bright enough to see it and grasp it in our own power. It is all ultimately the doing of God. And it's unconditional. And it's all forgiving. Right? Uh, no matter how much we don't deserve it, and no matter how much we take it for granted, no matter how much we sometimes trample God's grace by our sin and our foolishness. God uh, is forgiving, right? He is forgiving. I don't know how many times you have sinned the same sin over and over and how many times you say, God, I'm sorry. I, I, I knew I shouldn't have done it and I'm sorry I did it again. What is God's answer? I forgive you. The blood of Jesus covers it, right? Um, so, so that is God's love. It is a free gift, uh, really without strings attached. Right? Now we're going to talk a minute. Actually, there are strings attached, but not in the way we think of it humanly. Right? Uh, it is not that God is loving us so that he can manipulate us into getting something out of us. Right? There's no manipulation. There's no mixed motives in his love. It is unconditional and all-forgiving. Um, but, but there are strings attached in this, that John says here that um, if, if we have come under God's love, that, that we should be loving others the same way. Um, it is a free gift um, that he, he, requ- he expects it to change us, right? Um, by, by the way, uh, you know, how do you feel about gifts that have uh, strings attached that are very obvious and visible, right? Have you ever get, gotten a gift from somebody and right up front you, you just get these vibes that this is, this is not so pure, right? I remember one time I got this call from this very kind lady who invited me to a free steak dinner, me and, and my wife, you know, and and she was right at very front that she was an insurance salesman and she wanted to present to us a great opportunity that would be life-changing for us. And she believed in it so much, she wanted to invite us to a free steak dinner. And at this time, we were poor rural pastors in southwest Colorado. And I mean, you know, th- this is all the bait we needed. Free food, like, that we didn't have to cook. And it was steak. Like, wow. And I, I was so excited about this. And I thought, this lady, this lady loves us, right? A gift like this, she must really love us, right? 
And we got there, and of course, I knew it was going to be a sales pitch. I didn't, this is my first, I was kind of naive and stupid. I really didn't get the connection between how this free gift and what she wanted from me would be so, so guilt-inducing, right? And how, how obligated I would feel to buy her insurance because she fed me one lousy meal, right? Smart, smart lady, right? And, of course, I bought it, cause, not because I wanted it or because I believed I needed it, but because I felt so bad that she bought my dinner, right? It was not God's love, right? Um, he does not obligate us to duty out of guilt. But he does expect us to love, right? Uh, he does expect us to love. But here's the, here's the thing. Um, in verse 11, he says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us like this in this manner, we also ought to love one another. Literally, he says we, we have a debt. We have a, an obligation or a duty to love other people. Um, and again, it's not God expecting to get something back for us, but he's expecting that this love will transform us in a way that makes us a different kind of person, that makes us the kind of person that has his heart and loves like he loves, right? that we become like him, uh, as he says in ver- verses 7 and 8. Right? Beloved, love one another, for God is of love, and everyone that loves is born of God. Right? It should become something that becomes an outflow of our life because we've experienced his love. Um, he does not love us so that he can get something from us, but so that we will be like him. Um, so what does that look like? Let me just blow through this real quick. Um, of course, we don't love like God, okay? God does not ask, he has us to make sacrifices. He does not ask us to sacrifice our children. Okay, just be clear on that one, right? We cannot love like God loves. He's infinite, right? There's limits. But there's some characteristics about love that should be true in our life. So let's see if these are true of us. Uh, we should be incarnational. In other words, we should be the kind of people who enter into other people's struggles. Uh, you know, and I don't want to, I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to insult anybody, uh, but real popular child sponsor programs, right? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have given to child sponsorship programs? You give 25 bucks, $30 to sponsor some poor orphan in some part of the world, right? And, and people flock to this. Billions of dollars every year are, are spent on child sponsorship programs, and I'm not saying they don't do good things. Some of that $25 goes to help some child some way. It's great, right? But how much of that is, is really love, right? Being incarnational is not giving 25 bucks to help some child far away. Being incarnational is adopting a child, right? Is bringing one home and living with one. Right? That's the difference. Incarnational is, is, is going there and getting involved, right? It's not just giving maybe thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to some organizations that feeds the homeless. Being incarnational is opening your home and inviting homeless people in to eat with you. Right? Now, which of those is easier? Giving money every time, right? Uh, and if we can get, our, get it off our conscience with you know, a gift of money, wonderful. If you're asking me to actually have relationship with people, Right? Especially if you're an introvert like me. Ah, please, no. Right? Right? And, uh, and again, we're not having a relationship with people we like. We're having a relationship with poor and broken people, marginalized people, right? 
people who are enemies. Right? That's what it means to be incarnational. Um, it means, secondly, uh, you know, God gave generously, sacrificially, unselfishly. We, too, should be giving of ourselves and our resources. Um, and to do it in a way that is generous, unsa- unselfish, and sacrificial. Uh, it means giving at, at great cost. Right? If love does not cost you anything, it's probably not really love. Right? Love costs something. Um, and it's not just money. It, it really is oftentimes more so about giving yourself. Um, you know, I, I think it's funny. You know, we keep trying to come up with discipleship programs. I'm going to start a discipleship program. The church needs to have a discipleship program. As if programs and meetings could ever disciple somebody. But, but here's the thing. You know, we, we want to do that because uh, it doesn't involve me. You know, I can just have the program, and the program will do it, and I don't have to actually get involved, right? But Jesus does not give that picture of discipleship. Discipleship means investing your life in another person's life. It means giving of yourself, your time and your energy uh, to invest in another person's spiritual growth and development, right? It takes love and sacrificial love to do that, and that's required of us. Uh, It means we really help people. Okay, God did what was required, what was needed. Uh, I could go off on this, I won't, but um, a lot of Christians are super generous, super helpful, give a lot, but they give stuff that's actually not helpful. Right? Great book, When Helping Hurts, you need to read it. Be informed, be smart, and be wise about how you help people. Just giving stuff to people is not always helpful. Case in point, God does not give us infinite wealth, Right? Not because he doesn't love us, but because he knows that would not be helpful for us. Um, we need to be smart about how we help and give what's really needed to, to uh, solve their problem and get them standing on their own two feet. Lastly, we should never keep score. God is all forgiving. We should be forgiving. We should love without strings attached. We should not keep score. Uh, this is vital in a relationship, in a marriage relationship, parents to children, coworkers to coworkers, right? Uh, we don't keep track of our good deeds. Like, you know, man, if they would just be as loving as I am, because like I'm just loving, I'm just gushing love every day, and they're just not paying it back, right? And I've been keeping score, and I know how much loving I am, and I'm just breaking my back loving to them, right? We also don't keep score of their offenses against us. The times they've hurt us and wronged us and said stupid things, right? But every marriage needs that. Every, every relationship needs that. We don't keep score. We are forgiving. We are full of love and grace. Now, uh, at this point, I could end the sermon by saying, now go out there and do that, you bunch of bums. <laughs> you know, you... Know, you Just go in and love. You know, do that. God did it, and we saw how God did it with Jesus, and so you have a good example. So just get out there and just, you know, quit being so selfish and, and, you know, and and unloving, you bad people, right? Um, But John doesn't actually do that, and so as much as I would like to, because then I could go eat lunch now, um, i got to say one more thing, just one more thing, right? Well, it's it's one more thing with three points, but I'll make it quick. Right? (laughs) It's actually got pictures or kind of symbols. So, so here's the thing. We cannot do this. 
We can't do this. And if you've tried, right, you should know. Right? I'm, I'm too selfish for this. Uh, I don't like sacrificing. I don't like bringing into my home people that I, I don't know or don't like. I don't even like doing that with people I do like, right? Because I'm an introvert, right? Uh, I'm not wired to be loving like this. And just, you know, trying harder, all it does is make me frustrated and realize how bad I am at it. And, And John does not ask us to do this. John does not command us, right? Now, Paul, he would have commanded it, right? Uh, John's much wiser in, in some respects, right? Um, he says this, Beloved, let us love one another. It's a different word. It's not an imperative. It's not a command verb. It's close, right? It's a verb that says, it's a word and a tense that says, I know you're not doing this, at least not very well, so let's work on this, right? Uh, let's, let's love one another because, because uh, love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I look very carefully at what he's saying here. Um, I, think, I think John's principle is this, that love is the result of being born of God and knowing him. Um, what John, I think, is teaching here is this, is that you cannot encounter God's love and not be radically changed by it. Radically changed by it. And so what he's, what he's teaching here is not get out there and love better. He, what he's teaching is this. You need to encounter God's love in a much more significant and meaningful way. Because right now I'm looking at your life. And I'm, I don't, you know, the, the church that he's writing this to. He's saying, I'm looking at your life and I'm not seeing you love one another like you should be. And it's evidence that you have not encountered God's love deeply enough in your own life. And it hasn't had the transforming effect that I know God's love would have if you only encountered it. Um, and he, he says it uh, most pointedly in verses 14 and 15, 14, 15 and 16. He says this, And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay, so he said, I'm, a, I'm as an apostle. I was there. I was there. I saw Jesus. I walked with him. I saw him physically. I saw him with my own eyes, nailed to the cross. I saw what it cost for him to purchase our salvation. I saw it. And I am a witness. I am testifying to the church and the world. This is what Jesus did for us. Uh, To save the world. And whoever of you, verse 15, whoever of you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in you. And you abide in God. If you will make that confession that, yes, I believe that is true. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he went to the grave. I believe that he took with him all of my guilt and he uh, appeased God's wrath by taking it on himself. The full punishment for my sins. And he rose again. I make that confession. Then guess what? You abide in God. And God abides in you. And then he goes further. He says this in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is what this looks like. John says, look, there's a three-part cycle that you need to start going through daily. 
right? And it starts with knowing. He says, um, we have come to know the love of God. And the word know there has the idea of not just knowing it once, but knowing it in such a way that it's made a life-changing impact. Okay, it's changed us. We've come to know his love. Uh, and this knowledge is not simply information, but it's coming to grips with a truth that's so compelling, it forces us to, to, to live differently. Right? Um, it means that, that we know we are sinners, that we know we're under God's wrath and judgment, and the only hope for us is a rescuer, a savior. Right? We come to know that well. Right? And then it says that, that, that because we know his love, we, we believe in it. Um, faith in itself is not enough. Faith must have an object. Right? Faith must have something that it believes in. Okay, how many of you believe in flying? Anybody? Nobody believes in flying. How did you get, those of you who don't live in Thailand, how did you get, you swam? Right? How many of you believe in flying? Okay, a few of you do. Good, good. Um, I believe in flying too, right? And, and I trust in flying, right? But that's quite broad and vague in general. And actually, uh, we, we, leave, we believe in more than flying. If we just believed in flying and we go to the airport and the guy at the counter hands us a kite and says, hey, go fly. It's like, eh, not, not exactly what I had in mind. I believe in flying. What I really believe in is safe, modern, well-kept airplanes, right? That's what I believe in. That's what I'm willing to trust my life to, right? Word came out this week that Bangkok, the Thailand got nixed by the uh, International Aviation Administration that they don't follow safety procedures. Doesn't make me want to fly on Thai airlines, right? Uh, we have a knowledge, and it, it produces in us a belief, a conviction, a trust, right, that causes us to take steps in that direction. We believe not just in God. We must believe in the gospel. We must believe in what Jesus did specifically for us. And we must make choices about that. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm headed for hell and judgment. But I believe that Jesus' death was effective. It did what was necessary, and I grab hold of that. I believe it. Right? So we, we know love. We, we trust love with our whole life. And then what, notice what happens. He says that because of that, uh, so we've come to know and to believe the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. This is what, this is what happens when you when you know love and you trust love like that. You begin to abide in love. Right? You, you start living in the atmosphere of God's love, and it says that as a result of that, you you live in relationship with God. You you walk with Him. You know Him. You live with Him. Um, but it does not stop there because uh, as you abide in God's love, you encounter his love in ever deeper and more significant ways. And guess what? Your knowledge of love also grows and expands. So now you know love at a deeper level and you're now able to trust love in a, in a more significant way. And so you abide even deeper in Christ. And it's actually an, an ever outwards, outward moving spiral, right? as we know his love and we trust it and we abide in him and, and we come to know it more and trust it more and abide deeper. That's the picture that John's painting here. He's saying if you're not loving, if you're not that generous, if you're not that unselfish, if you're not that forgiving, 
You need to do some workouts. You need to get on the treadmill of knowing God's love and trusting it and abiding in him. Of encountering God in your daily life and experiencing his love in deeply profound ways that change you. Right? Uh, we, we celebrated communion this morning. And, and how, how does this work in real life? Well, it does mean that we can do something about this by our effort, our energy to know love better. Right? To, to contemplate and meditate and think about the gospel regularly. Right? If you were to evaluate how often in a week does the gospel dominate your thinking, right? if you would say, well, aside from Sunday morning, actually probably never. Right? Well, that would be an indication of why love is hard for you. Because right? uh, it's the kind of thing that's supposed to be contemplated constantly. And the reason I know that is because God, Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. Right? Jesus said, look, what's one of the most common things you do every day? Breathe. Okay, yeah, breathe. I get that one. Okay, what's something else you do every day? Eat. Eat. That's right. You eat every day. Three times, right? I, I want you, when you eat, to remember my body broken for you. Every time you drink, I want you to remember my blood poured out for you. Right. Sadly, we've turned into this, this ceremony that we do once a month. Not what God intended. He said, every time you eat and drink. Right? In other words, I want to infuse the everyday common elements of your life with the gospel, with the saving work of Jesus. It should be like breathing for us. Every time we're in the word, every time we sing, every time we praise, every time we move, right? we are contemplating God's love for us in Jesus. That will be life-transforming. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.